Section 39 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End wanted a radical party perhaps it would be an exaggeration and one a little lacking in charity to say that the puritans now concentrate on prohibition because it is the only piece of morality they have left but there would be a truth in the travesty for it is very curious to watch how the nonconformist conscience has hardened on this one matter while it has gone soft on so many other things in the matter of sex, about which it was once a byword for severity, it has really begun to exhibit the strangest sort of laxity. Marriage may be almost indefinitely dissolved and dissipated, so long as the dissipation is called divorce. Ireland, to take an example, is at this moment threatened with massacre and misery because the Irish question was not settled, though very nearly settled thirty years ago. The Irish question was not settled thirty years ago, because the whole nonconformist world rose in horror at the private conduct of Parnell, who married a divorced wife whom he had loved when she was practically a deserted wife. In other words, the deliverer of Ireland was enthroned and Ireland left undelivered, because he had done something which the whole modern divorce movement would permit him, and practically encouraged him to do. Take so typical a representative of popular Puritanism as the nonconformist novelist Mr. Silas Hawking. He is a man very representative, and I believe very sincere, and he has made himself a champion and chief controversialist on behalf of divorce. Indeed, his doctrine, whether he himself understands it or no, would involve almost infinite divorce. In criticizing a book of mine on the subject, he argued that a man might repudiate the marriage contract exactly as he would repudiate any business contract, like that between a publisher and an author. I pointed out to Mr. Hawking that I was not in the habit of making to my publisher a solemn vow in a sacred building. I never worshipped my publisher with my body, or promised to keep myself to him till death did us part. But Mr. Hawking distinctively said, whatever he may have met, that the question was whether the publisher or partner or other parties to the contract had not got out of it what he had a right to expect. That is, presumably, whether the husband or wife had found reasonable happiness in the marriage. After all, had poor Kitty O'Shea found reasonable happiness in her marriage? Was O'Shea any better than scores of husbands whose claims are now calmly dissolved? Was Parnell any worse than scores of co-respondents who are now reintroduced into respectable society? The truth is that the old institution of marriage, on behalf of which the Puritans made the great demonstration only thirty years ago, has already been abolished in England, and largely with the assistance of the Puritans. Much of the futility that has fallen on the nonconformists, considered as a nonconformist, has unfortunately fallen on the same type considered as a radical, and the political laxity is even more lamentable than the religious in the sense that it is less excusable. The Puritan has not really defended purity, but the liberal has not even defended liberty. He also has been false to his own chosen ideals. 
and the ideals he chose were not even so arduous and austere. The recent failure of radicalism has lain in not being efficiently radical. It is not going to the root of the matter, and not having the courage to uproot it. With one or two more honorable exceptions, my old friends the liberals had conspicuously failed to fight for liberty in the one way that really matters, that is, to fight for liberty against the really powerful enemies of liberty. They have preferred to fight against a rapidly weakening aristocracy rather than against a rapidly strengthening plutocracy. They have conducted a struggling sham fight against a few squires, while the whole world is full of the murmur of the millions against the millionaires. They have continued to tell old village tales about the tyranny of the parson when every village school and village almhouse is overshadowed with the tyranny of the professor. After the professors had made war on Europe with all the guns and gases of hell, they continued to hunt not the professors but the priests. They continued to talk about the priest in the school and the priest in the home. They continued to look for a Jesuit by way of a skeleton in the cupboard and looked under the bed for a bishop instead of a burglar. They continued to repeat what they had heard from their great-grandmother's parrot, that venerable Victorian bird, that clericalism was the enemy, though they had not seen the enemy with their own eyes, filling the skies with the engines of modern science, and filling the libraries with the ethics of Nietzsche and the Prussian pupil of Voltaire. They helped patriotically to destroy Prussia, but they did not understand what they had destroyed, or why they had destroyed it. They were doing their duty as Englishmen, but they did not know, as they should have known, that they were doing their duty as radicals. Since the war they have become only too eagerly persuaded of the absurd contradiction that the duty of a radical is to be a pacifist, as if a revolutionist uprooting things could ever be at peace. This type of man, though individually a very honest and healthy character in many ways, has entirely lost his bearings at the present time. He does not know where he is, or what he ought to hold, and least of all what he ought to attack. I have taken the example of foreign policy and the Great War, but the case is, if possible, even stronger, touching domestic policy and peace. Here again, what is wrong with the radical is that he is in the very worst sense a conservative. Only instead of conserving a compromise, is conserving a conflict, and a conflict which is altogether out of date, which carries the drums and banners of a battle as remote as the Wars of the Roses. In domestic politics, also, the liberal will profess to be jealous of the encroachments of orthodox and organized religion. But as a fast, there is no organized religion to compare with the oppressive regimentation of organized irreligion. There are no tests that impose orthodoxy to compare with the tests that impose heresy like the heresies of hygiene. The old doctrines of theology are not forcibly imposed on anybody, but the new theories of science are forcibly imposed upon everybody. The priest cannot call in the policeman to help him impose a penance, but the doctor can call in the policeman to help him impose an operation. People are not driven into a church, but they are driven out of a public house. But all this vast and violent aggression on the part of the materialists seems to be quite invisible to the radical, who is haunted with his ancient hatred of harmless mystics. All this rigid and militant regimentation may have a morality of its own, and it may be quite right that those who believe in it should support it. But surely there ought to be somewhere 
a liberal morality to resist it and the party that was supposed to stand for liberty seems to have lost its chance in human history and failed to resist it at all on any calculation there must be something to be said for liberty and it is the liberal who refuses to say it it is all the more curious because i suspect that even in the vulgar electioneering sense it would be a popular thing to say i cannot understand why the liberal instead of talking rather more vaguely than the coalitionist about schemes of industrial welfare and social reform does not put himself at the head of the real discontent that is roused by all this dragooning and detection i suppose the fact is the final confession that every party now depends not on popularity but on plutocracy not even on vote-catching but merely on money-getting one would think that any man worth calling a radical would have no doubt about his sympathies in a contest between the crofters and a capitalist but capitalists can contribute to the party funds and crofters cannot the party funds have become more important than the party votes let alone the party principles yet even upon this calculation the coldness of liberals about freedom remains something of a mystery if they are practical politicians we do not of course expect them to do anything but surely it is strange that politicians should not even say anything why in the world have not these politicians had the sense to promise us emancipation one would think that it was a question of their being expected to keep their promises surely no such restraint as that need impair the eloquence and energy of our national leaders at the next general election surely they might make some new promises as freely as they made the old promises and keep them as carefully as they have kept the old promises they promised us a sort of utopia after the war surely they might find the courage to promise us the ordinary liberties of the subject which we possessed even before the war they promised us a country fit for heroes to live in surely they might promise us a country fit for grown men to live in they promised us a league of nations to protect us from foreign tyrants and imperialistic invaders over whom they had really no control surely they might promise to protect us from the bureaucratic tyrants and invading inspectors over whom they have complete control they talked as if they believed in the war that would end war surely they could at least talk as if the war had not ended citizenship they promised us so much and they have done so little surely they might promise a little more even if they do a little less as an old radical i suggest that there might be a new radicalism i cannot understand why nobody is preparing for the next general election with a real radical program as i have said it might well have a certain superficial success even if it were never anything more than a program why does not somebody refresh the stale dregs of a dead socialism with a new individualism why does not somebody try to repeat the triumph of joe chamberlain and his three acres and a cow why does not someone pit that sort of small property against the fabian vision of officials ploughing thousands of acres and officials driving herds of cattle we have reached the precise psychological moment when the repetition of it as a rumor has prepared the way for it as a novelty it is now just sufficiently familiar to appear to be entirely fresh ten years ago it may be nobody would have understood it ten years hence please god everybody will understand it 
but at this particular moment a politician bringing it forward would seem to be both original and democratic, both individual and social. It would be the most promising of all policies, if, like so many policies, it were promising and nothing else. End of section 39